Ladies and gentlemen, we are expecting a full house today, so we would be very grateful if there is a spare seat next to you, if you could shuffle up to fill it um, to allow seats to be left at the end for latecomers. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the penultimate lunchtime lecture in the Hunterian Museum lecture series. Um, today, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Gareth Williams. Um, Gareth studied medicine at Cambridge and the now extinct Middlesex Hospital, which some of you may remember, uh, trained in London and Geneva, focusing on diabetes and endocrinology. He was the Dean of Medicine in Bristol, and having survived that fascinating experience, he then took a sabbatical, at which point he became interested in his Gloucestershire neighbour, Edward Jenner. Since then, he has written books on such diverse subjects as polio, smallpox, and the Loch Ness Monster. I'm sure he'll mention that later if someone asks him. I'd also like to pass on my thanks to the AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, whose funding has made this series of events on vaccination possible as part of the ConSciCom project. And now, without more ado, I pass over to Gareth. Thank you. Well, Haley, thank you very much indeed for your warm welcome. And uh, hello to everybody, and thank you very much indeed for coming. Um, I'm going to be telling you about uh, a tale of medical intrigue uh, with a villain, uh, in fact, several villains. The most obvious villain is smallpox, the disease, but there are plenty of human villains as well. Um, that's me. The picture is not me, obviously. That's actually Edward Jenner, um, portrayed there not as one of the great saints of medicine, but actually as a rather evil man, and that was part of the anti-vaccination propaganda in the middle of the 19th century. There's no time to talk about that today, but you will know that Jenner was regarded as a good guy and a bad guy by different camps. So here to introduce the main players, we have the sorcerer, John Hunter, uh, amazing man, the father of experimental surgery, played a very prominent role in the foundation of this college. Uh, there he is in a portrait in his bearded face, his wife hated the picture so much that she sent it back to the artist. Uh, you can see a much more respectable rendition. That's him downstairs in the foyer. Uh, so he's the sorcerer, <clears throat> and his apprentice was Edward Jenner, one of his star pupils. And that's roughly what Jenner looked like in his most active years. Before I talk about them, I really need to introduce the main villain of the piece, which is smallpox. And smallpox is no longer with us. It's still the only human disease which we've managed to extinguish from the face of the planet. Polio, as you know, is teetering on the brink and should be there next year if we're lucky. But smallpox in its heyday, which was three or four centuries, was one of the great feared killers of humanity. And one of the professors of medicine in Canada, in fact, in 1914, said that even then, Smallpox was a disease which people were forgetting about. And the reason for that is that Jenner's invention of vaccination was not only protecting individuals, but applied across the whole planet was actually pushing the virus towards extinction. So even then, smallpox was becoming a much rarer disease. But when uh, Professor Fraser Harris spoke those words in 1914, 
smallpox would still be alive and well on the planet for another 63 years, and in that time it would kill 250 million people. Uh, in its heyday, again, it was one of the great lotteries of life. Uh, you had about a one in three chance of catching it. If you caught it, you had about a one in four chance of dying from it. So overall, it killed about one person in 12 across pretty well the whole of the planet. Uh, most of its victims were kids under the age of five. So it had this fearsome reputation as a slayer of innocent children. If you got it and you lived, you weren't necessarily that lucky because about one in three of the survivors were badly scarred. And scarring was not just a bit of juvenile acne. It was often so hideous that uh, people found it very difficult to live with. And there were plenty of people on record who killed themselves rather than look in the mirror. As well as the skin being scarred, uh, the front of the eye could be scarred, and smallpox was the commonest cause of blindness in people of working age in Europe. Here are a couple of pictures uh, just to show you what the rash looked like. Um, the little boy there, he was actually on the World Health Organization smallpox recognition card, so he has immortality of a sort, if you like. And this was the picture that they used to identify cases in early outbreaks when they were in the last stages of exterminating the disease in India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Um, you can see those nasty pustules there. If you cut the little boy across or scanned him with an MR scan, you'd see that those lesions are all the way through him. So what you see on the skin is just the, the superficial rendition of a disease that's really drilling its way through the whole of the body. The young woman on the right there is a couple of weeks after the stage of the little boy. Uh, the pustules have dried up, the scabs have formed and fallen off, but she's still left with a lot of swelling in the skin, and that's why her face is swollen, her eyes are shut. And when that picture was taken, neither she nor the two people holding her up knew whether she'd be able to see when finally she could open her eyes again. So a horrendous disease, a killer and a mutilator. And it's a disease that medicine was nearly, never really able to do anything for if you actually got it. I mean, it's an eminently preventable disease and it's been exterminated. But right up to the point where it disappeared from the planet, if you got it, then you took your chances with it as people had done through the centuries. A hundred years before Jenna, doctors used leeches to treat pretty well everything, including smallpox. It didn't work, but it was a great reason for the doctor to give you a bill for services rendered. Uh, the color red, that was held in many cultures, China, Wales, Africa, Central Europe, to be protective against and curative of smallpox. So when one of the Austrian emperors was dying of smallpox, they actually sent to England for 14 yards of heavy red English flannel. They wrapped him up in it and he dropped dead pretty well on the spot. So as clinical trials go, it is rather small, but it does rather suggest that the color red is not that great. I do see some people here with red things. It's not going to work, okay. <laughs> uh, in Jenner's day, leeches are still around. In fact, they hang around for about 100 years after that. Um, two notable physicians fought a duel on the steps of Gresham College, not too far from here, to prove that either drugs that gave you diarrhea or drugs that made you throw up were the better for treating smallpox. And clearly neither of those did anything other than help the doctor's income stream. Uh, when I was a medical student, we had intensive therapy units, we had antiviral drugs, but in fact, if you got smallpox, the mortality was effectively the same as it had been back 200 years earlier. 
So things hadn't really changed that much. Um, it is a, luckily a preventable disease. Uh, it looks like there's a picture missing here, but it was just showing the little boy with the blisters again. So just to remind you what smallpox looks like. Uh, Jenner is famous, obviously, for vaccination. And vaccination, to remind you, is giving a healthy person a small dose of a virus called cowpox. And what happens is that you get over your infection with cowpox. Uh, you raise antibodies against the cowpox virus. And by a very lucky accident of nature, the cowpox virus and the smallpox virus are in the same family. So the antibodies against cowpox also protect you against smallpox, and that's basically what vaccination did. Now, before Jenner thought of that, or put it on the map anyway, uh, there was another way of protecting people against catching smallpox. And this, it sounds incredible, was actually to give them deliberately smallpox, the same infection. Uh, and this process was called variolation. Variola is the Latin for speckled, and it's just the description of the disease. It's also the name, the Latin name, of the smallpox virus. And this tradition was known as buying the smallpox. And it sprung up apparently independently in various corners of the planet, uh, from Central Africa through to Central and Eastern Europe, Pembrokeshire, believe it or not, and China. And the way that it was done was to get the pus out of those revolting-looking blisters uh, scratch that into the skin of a healthy child. The method they used in China was rather different. There they collected the scabs after the pustules had dried up. They powdered the scabs and they blew the powder up the child's nostril using a silver tube. And both those things sound completely balmy, but they did actually work. And in its day, this was actually one of the best and one of the safest, most effective medical procedures. The way it works, just very briefly, is that you're putting the virus into an unusual habitat. Normally, when you caught smallpox in the usual way, you inhaled an aerosol from a smallpox sufferer full of the viruses, and they would get into your respiratory tract. You remember that the surface area of the lungs is about the same as a tennis court. So from there, the virus is into the bloodstream very quickly before your immune system has had a chance to recognize that something is going wrong and start raising antibodies against it. If, by contrast, you put the virus in under the skin or up the nose, then there are local immune cells up the nose and under the skin that will spot the virus as it tries to get into the bloodstream. And that means that you're beginning to mount an immune response as the virus is trying to multiply. So you've effectively nobbled the virus, and that's why this works. It did actually protect people against natural smallpox pretty effectively. Your risks of dying from variolation, being given smallpox deliberately, were about 1 in 50. So very, very much better than the 1 in 4 if you caught smallpox in the usual way. There was one big problem. There's the rash, just to remind you. And by the way, the going price for the juice from 12 blisters was three old pennies. That was in Pembrokeshire in the late 1680s. The one big disadvantage was that once you'd been variolated, although you were very likely to get better, you did break out in a smallpox rash of real smallpox viruses, and that meant that you were just as infectious as a normal case. So there were plenty of reports of people actually triggering smallpox epidemics by going back into the community and spreading smallpox from their variolation blisters. 
So variolation was pretty good, but clearly there was room for improvement. And this is where Jenna comes into the story in a few minutes' time. So having introduced smallpox, I'll now introduce, first of all, the sorcerer. Uh, John Hunter, FRS, Fellow of the Royal Society. Uh, there he is. Uh, this is a very famous portrait of him looking reflective and surrounded by many of the props of a successful career. And he was a fascinating man, somebody I really would have loved to have met. Uh, Surgeon Extraordinary. Well, he was an extraordinarily flamboyant, colourful character. He actually had the official title of Surgeon Extraordinary to His Majesty King George. And he had lots of other titles as well. He was a true polymath. He was interested in pretty well everything that moved and many things that had stopped moving as well. Um, he was interested in lizards, how lizards regrew their tails. And this was something he became interested in while a field surgeon on Belle Isle in one of the wars against the French. Uh, he tried to work out how electric eels generate electricity. And he was fascinated by giants. And if you look very carefully at that picture, you'll see up in the top right-hand corner there some suspiciously big skeleton limbs. And those belong to the famous Irish giant called Byrne. Uh, Byrne got to know Hunter while Byrne was still alive. Uh, Hunter said to Byrne, I'd love to have your skeleton when you're dead. And Byrne said, no way, Jose, and arranged for himself to be buried in a lead coffin under many, many tons of stone. And of course, when he died, Hunter sent his men out. They dug up poor old Byrne. They bleached his skeleton. They basically cooked all the flesh off it. And uh, he's still in the museum today. And those are Byrne's skeletal legs up there. Um, he was also very interested in the notion of, well, it's the sort of precursor of CPR. Uh, this is resuscitation. And he had a reputation as a theoretical resurrectionist. And he believed that if you applied the equivalent of cardiopulmonary resuscitation, immediately after death, you could bring people back to life. And one of his famous experiments was done on a clergyman who was hanged for fraud. And the clergyman went to the gallows with a smile on his face because he knew that after he dropped, Hunter would be there at the foot of the scaffold to bring him back to life. Uh, sadly, things did not work out entirely as planned as you can imagine. Um, he was also very much a maverick. Uh, Hunter was into flamboyant dissections in public of exotic animals. And when, for example, giraffes died in the zoo, Hunter would be there cutting them up in front of an amazed audience. He had a place out at Earl's Court, which was a menagerie. There were leopards and giraffes and elephants strolling around in the gardens. So a thoroughly interesting man. He also had an unfortunate combination. He had a very hot temper. He was an angina sufferer, and he had a remarkable capacity for making enemies as well as friends. And that was the combination that you probably know is what did him in in the end. So that's John Hunter, Surgeon Extraordinary. And he was in an interesting relationship with a rather complicated family. Uh, his wife was, in many ways, the opposite of him. He was a rather coarse man, a ruffian, absolutely brilliant, but quite a, quite, quite a coarse man in some ways. Uh, his wife was Anne Hunter, uh, who was into music. Um, Handel wrote uh, music to accompany some of the poems that she'd written. She's pictured here as the pensive muse in an opera that she played a role in. She had a wonderful performing uh, singing voice. Um, her unmarried name was Hume. Um, there's her husband with beard, which, again, she detested. 
and her brother was his picture. Actually, I hadn't realized this very picture is downstairs in the hall as you come in on the right-hand side. And this is an extremely nasty bit of work. He was president of the college, so I better be careful what I say. But he was an exceedingly unpleasant, vindictive, jealous, nasty piece of work. And he was called Everett Hume. FRS, Fellow of the Royal Society, very, very bright man, but actually very, very jealous of the relationship, as you'll hear, between John Hunter and his star pupil, Edward Jenner, with sad consequences. Now, Hunter uh, was an interesting man who taught anatomy. Uh, some of the cadavers that he used were uh, obtained under rather dodgy circumstances. And this is basically the house that uh, he occupied. You'll see on the left-hand side of the picture there is the demonstration room where the cadavers were cut up in front of the amazed audience of medical students. Uh, the bit to the right-hand side here is a combination of lecture rooms, a library, a room where they held conversaciones. And then there's the living quarters of the Hunter residence with Anne and her soiree, with music and high culture and everything else. So it was a real mishmash. And it was such a striking uh, discord, if you like, between blood and guts on one hand and high culture on the other hand, that he was actually probably the basis for Robert Louis Stevenson's portrayal of Jekyll and Hyde. He had this rather nice face, the clever man with the beautiful, talented wife, and then he had this very ruffianly side. So that is where people believe that Jekyll and Hyde came from. So I'll now introduce uh, The Apprentice and show you how they blend together. Um, the, way that, the reason I'm here, actually, is because when we moved down to Bristol, uh, we moved to the center of the universe, depicted here by that red dot. This is the village of Rockhampton. Nobody has yet died of excitement in Rockhampton. Uh, the only thing in Rockhampton is not even a pub or a shop. But there is a village church, and although I'm not particularly churchy, it's a fascinating building. And the reason I'm here is that I wandered in one day and had a look at the list of vicars since 1260, and there were two Jenners on it. One was Edward Jenner's father, the other was his elder brother, and that's basically what got me interested in this. So we live about five miles south of the town of Barclay, which is there, and that's where Edward Jenner was born, uh, where he went back to do all his experiments, where he developed vaccination, where he died, and where he is buried. Now, Jenner was orphaned by the age of five, at the age of eight, he was sent off to boarding school at Wooden Under Edge, a few miles away. And at that time, smallpox had just broken out nearby. So all the new boys going into this boarding school were variolated. And variolation, you remember, is giving a healthy child a little dose of smallpox by scratching it into the skin. As practiced in Turkey, which is where news was brought back to England of this strange mystical practice, Variolation took about 20 seconds. When Edward Jenner was variolated, together with all the other boys going into the boarding school, the process took seven weeks. And the reason for that was that English doctors had got hold of it and were making it a, a, an income stream generator. So for the first seven weeks or so, they were kept outside, actually in the stables to get them nice and cold. They were bled repeatedly to purify the blood. They were given purgatives so they'd have nice therapeutic diarrhea every day. And then they were given a dose of smallpox. And Jenna reacted badly to this. He wasn't badly scarred, but he had psychological scars. And again, if you read his diaries, you'll see that later on in life he had flashbacks to this awful experience. 
And that is terrible for him, terrifying for him as, a, as an eight-year-old lad, but actually rather good for us because I believe that that's one of the things that kept him focused on the need to think of something better than variolation to protect against smallpox. Now, Jenna started medicine probably at about the age of 14 because they started very young in those days. Uh, he was apprenticed to a physician apothecary in Chipping Sodbury, which is just south, slightly off the map. Now, you have to be very careful if you're giving a talk in Chipping Sodbury not to say sodding Chipbury, which I have done, uh, but they're very forgiving. I think it happens quite a lot. And the story goes that uh, Jenna was there and a local milkmaid came in to see him about something. And he said, okay, we'll do what we can. Uh, by the way, smallpox has come back, so we'd better get you variolated. And she allegedly said, you don't have to do that, gov. And he said, why not? And she said, because I've had cowpox. Uh, Jenna probably said something like, you what? Because he had not heard of cowpox. Cowpox was not in any of the medical books. It was something that he'd never been taught about. And it was well known in the peasantry, uh, the lower social classes who lived with cows and milked cows, that if you got this disease called cowpox off one of your cows, then you knew you had it, but you always recovered. And the miraculous thing was that having recovered, you could never then catch smallpox. So on the left there, you've got blisters of cowpox on the cow's udders. And if, as a milkmaid, you had a little scratch in your skin, then the juice from those blisters would get in. The cowpox virus would set up a local infection. You'd get something like those blisters on your hand. The glands would come up under your arm. You'd have a bit of a fever. You'd feel unwell for a few days. But then you'd get better again. And the miraculous thing was that you were then protected magically against smallpox. So milkmaids, for example, who'd had cowpox, were used to nurse people dying of smallpox because their faith in their protection was that strong. So this was a legend from the peasantry, if you like. It hadn't found its way into the medical textbooks, and it was something that Jenner and his mentors, including John Hunter, knew nothing about. So the 14-and-a-half-year-old Jenner parks this bit of information, and it's the start of a 30-year experiment. There are lots of experiments that Jenner never quite got round to finishing. He did finish this one, luckily for all of us, but it did take him 30 years to do it. So just returning to Jenner's trail, he trained locally, and then it was decided to send him to London so that he could become a proper doctor. And London is 130 miles that way. And he then became uh, the star pupil of John Hunter. And the two of them got on really well from the start. Uh, Jenner was very bright, he was polymathic, he was inquisitive, he was curious in all the right senses, and he and Hunter really took to each other from the start. Uh, Jenner had family money, so he never had to work himself to death as a doctor. And again, that was one of the dangers of him going back to a quiet country practice in southern Gloucestershire, because he could easily have withered away and just done the medicine and nothing else. And it was Hunter who actually kept his interest in the science of medicine alive, that I believe actually was one of the things that nudged him into picking up the vaccination story 30 years after he'd met that milkmaid. Uh, again, very much like Hunter, he was a polymath. He was a dilettante, though. There were lots of things that he never quite finished. Um, I think an evening with Jenna would have been wonderful. He was very fond of wine. Uh, he was a good musician. He played the flute and the violin, and he sang, and he wrote poetry. And I'd like to recite to you one of the poems that he wrote, 
on the event of the death of Dr. Waite. Now, Dr. Waite was famous for his medicinal gingerbread, his gingerbread nuts. And they were used to kill intestinal worms, which were a big social medical problem at the time. We're not talking about worms, we're talking about worms. And Dr. Waite's gingerbread nuts were one of the few things that apparently made any useful impact at all. So when Dr. Waite died, Jenna wrote the following, and it begins with the Latin names of the worms. Ascarides, Tyres, Lumbrici, and all, ye kyle-sucking insects that tremblingly crawl, no more be afraid, you're quite safe in our guts, for Waite has done making his gingerbread nuts. So it's a sort of proto-limerick. It just gives you an idea of the sort of the playful nature of Jenna. And if you go to the Welcome Rare Book Collection on the Euston Road, you can see that poem and several others that he's written in his handwriting in his, in his notebooks. So a good guy. And as I mentioned, he was a victim of variolation. So he'd had a really, really bad experience. And I think that this was something that brought him back to the notion of trying to improve on that practice to protect against smallpox. Now, as I mentioned, he and Hunter got on really well from the start. And as well as being a star pupil, um, uh, Jenner actually got on very well with Anne Hume, Anne Hunter, uh, John Hunter's wife. And it seems very likely that he performed uh, either singing or playing the flute or the violin in some of her soirees. So he was well integrated into the family. And he set up a, a sort of 20-year correspondence with, uh, with, with John Hunter. And at one point, Hunter wrote, I do not know of anyone I would sooner write to than you. And there's 20 years uh, worth of letters. Some of them are upstairs in the museum here. The thing that's entirely missing is Jenner's replies. And it seems very likely that Everett Hume, the baddie in the, or one of the baddies in the story, actually burned all of Jenner's correspondence as part of his uh, uh, scorched earth policy in dealing with Hunter after Hunter died. I'll come back to that later on. So we only have the surviving correspondence from John Hunter to Edward Jenner. And he wrote to them, well, he, he corresponded with them about lots of things. And one of the things that um, Hunter was very keen on was basically to tell Jenner, get a bloody move on and do some experiments. And Jenner was very good at thinking and theorizing and writing, presumably in detail, to Hunter, but he never actually got around to doing very many experiments. So one of the things that Hunter did to keep Jenner's interest in the scientific basis of medicine alive was to get him involved in doing experiments. And one of the experiments that's quite famous is measuring the core temperature of hibernating hedgehogs. And Hunter was very interested in knowing how animals stayed alive while they were hibernating. So he had a very crude, early glass mercury thermometer, and I'll leave it to your very vivid imaginations as to how you might measure the core internal temperature of a slumbering hedgehog. Put it this way, this was something that hedgehogs were not sort of likely to volunteer for. Um, at one point, Jenna sends off a crate of hedgehogs to London, and a lovely letter comes back from Hunter saying, thanks very much for the hedgehogs. I've used them up. I am now hedgehogless. Can I have another 24, please? So another crate of hedgehogs heads off to London and are dealt with in the usual way. Um, Hunter wanted a great bustard. And this was a huge game bird, about, you know, bigger than a turkey, lived in Salisbury Plain. It was already nearly extinct. And uh, Jenner's 
uh, attention to detail meant that it got even closer to extinction with a number that he sent up to Hunter in London. Uh, at one point, Hunter got interested in marine mammals and said, can I have a whale, please? And back then, the Bristol Channel was actually full of marine mammals. Haverford West, over on the Welsh side, was actually a, a whaling port. So Jenner sent his men out on the tide. They came back with an 11-foot bottlenose porpoise, which was crated up and sent off to London. A nice letter comes back from Hunter saying, thanks very much for the porpoise. I dissected it in public. It was great. By the way, it was lactating, but unfortunately, the milk had gone off. So can I have another one, please? And this time, I need to know what fresh porpoise milk tastes like. So another fortnight goes by. Another 11-foot porpoise heads off in a crate to London with a little note from Jenna saying, just like cow's milk with added cream. So Hunter is the man that could persuade Jenna to go out and get porpoises and drink raw porpoise milk as well. Um, Hunter was giving Jenna useful advice. And again, Jenna was not a terribly worldly man to begin with. And he'd actually worked out something useful, which sounds very improbable, but one of the drugs to make you throw up and therefore better um, was an antimony salt that was very, very insoluble. And Jenna worked out a way of getting this into solution using Madeira, using the Madeira wine. And uh, he was prepared to tell everybody about it. Uh, Hunter said, no, burn all the evidence and take out a patent. And it's something that Jenna never quite got around to doing. Um, Hunter was the person who promoted Jenna to get his fellowship of the Royal Society. It wasn't anything to do with medicine or vaccination. It was actually to explain how the baby cuckoo chick ended up on its own in the nest. And uh, again, there's no time to go into it now, but if you're interested at the end, I can give you a demonstration as to how the baby cuckoo chick gets rid of all the other eggs and nestlings in the nest that the mother cuckoo has parasitized. There was also lots of personal stuff in the letters from Hunter to Jenna. Um, he offered to be godfather, even though he said, I'm not in the least bit religious, but I'm perfectly happy to be godfather to your child. Um, and he also gave Jenna hints about his own health and said that he was suffering from attacks of one sort or another, which again, uh, you can imagine was making Jenna really quite worried. But Jenna referred to him as my dear man, so they were obviously very, very close indeed. Now back to Jenna, um, he met the milkmaid a long time earlier when he was a, uh, an apprentice medical student. We know that he was thinking about using cowpox therapeutically, in other words, giving cowpox deliberately to healthy people to stop them from getting smallpox, because he was talking about it in a local doctor's drinking, eating, and nattering club. And this was called the Convivio Medical Society, and it met at the ship inn in Alveston, which is right beside the now A38, Bristol Gloucester Road. And uh, the pub is pretty well the same today as it was then. I don't think they had ABBA tribute nights back then, but otherwise it's pretty well the same. Uh, and this club was designed to promote the united purposes of conviviality, having a good time, and the improvement of medical science. However, there's an entry in the minutes which says that if Jenna persists in talking about cowpox and how it can be used to protect people against smallpox, we're going to throw him out because he's getting very boring and he's not doing any experiments. So finally, he did get around to doing it, uh, try the experiment, as his mentor, John Hunter, had said. Uh, and this is the chocolate box cover depiction of the amazing day when uh, Jenner does his first properly recorded vaccination. 
Now, the chain of command, if you like, begins with a cow who is left out of the picture because she would clog it up otherwise. Uh, we know the cow is called Blossom, and you can see her hide today in the foyer of St. George's Medical School in Tooting. And in Tooting as well, you've got two horns that belonged to Blossom. If you go to the Edward Jenner Museum in Berkeley, you can see two horns that belong to Blossom. If you go to the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow, you can find another horn that belonged to Blossom. So she was quite a cow. Or <laughs> uh, a bit like the sacred parts of saints. I think that's probably more what it is all about. Anyway, uh, Blossom was the favourite cow of Sarah Nelms, the girl wearing the mop hat on the right of the picture there. She had caught cowpox off Blossom, and she had a blister on the back of her hand, and you'll see that Edward Jenner has pranged that with a lancet. Uh, she's got a bandage over the punctured blister. He's collected the fluid, and he's scratching the fluid into the arm of a willing volunteer. And this was before ethics committees got in the way and made things very difficult for us all. But James Phipps was the eight-year-old son of the gardener. So his degrees of freedom for saying no to the master of the house were zero, and his father's ability to refuse use of his child as a guinea pig was pretty well zero as well. So there is Jenna scratching uh, cow pox pus into the lad's arm. And what he's doing is he's testing his hypothesis, which again has taken him 30 years to formulate. And that is that if I deliberately infect a healthy child with cowpox, they'll get better and then they'll be protected against smallpox. So that's basically what he did. And this first vaccination took place on the 14th of May, 1796, um, where he scratched the cowpox pus in. Uh, the lad got a small sore. The glands came up under his arm, just as if he'd caught it milking a cow. He felt unwell for a few days, then he got better. So Jenna said, well, that's good. Now what we've got to do is we've got to prove that he's resistant to smallpox. So the only way to do that is to give him smallpox. And that's exactly what he did at the beginning of July. And nowadays we'd say you cannot give a child a smallpox. It kills people. But in fact, that was the least controversial bit of the whole thing because giving a child smallpox was just variolation. It was an accepted medical procedure. So Jenna variolated the lad in July and nothing happened. There was no reaction whatsoever. So that was the eureka moment. That was when Jenna realized that giving somebody cowpox could protect them against the killer smallpox. So he wrote it all up uh, in a big paper that he sent to the Royal Society. And remember that he was already a fellow of the Royal Society because of his seminal work on the cuckoo chick. And they rejected it. And Jenna was incensed and paranoid and he then discovered that the person who had recommended the paper to be rejected was, guess who? Everard Hume. He was the referee, the expert referee, brought in by the president of the Royal Society to see if this paper was up to anything. And Jenner was very paranoid because he believed that Everard Hume was trying to steal his secret and do him down. And again, having read a bit about Everard Hume, I think he might have been onto something there. Anyway, Jenner wrote up the... Um, the, his experiments, he did more experiments, he wrote it all up into a huge paper that he had printed privately. And it's called The Inquiry for short. And uh, this is probably one of the biggest landmarks in the history of medicine, the history of science. And it was essentially produced as a piece of vanity publishing. It wasn't peer-reviewed. Jenna paid for it to be printed by a printer in Soho. So anybody who could part with seven and sixpence could set themselves up as a vaccinator because Jenner in the inquiry showed exactly what to do. 
He explained about the history of cowpox. He explained how to recognize the blisters, how to collect the fluid. This is a picture of Sarah Nelms's hand. And the blister in the middle with the crater in the top is the one that he pranged in order to get the fluid to vaccinate James Phipps, the gardener's son. And it was an instant success. It was a do-it-yourself guide to vaccination. And instantly people realized that this was a huge breakthrough. This was streets better than variolation because it was safer and you didn't have the risk of people going back and spreading smallpox from their variolation blisters. So this is really what made Jenner's name very quickly, but the date is unfortunate because it was in 1798. And in the background, of course, you have his mentor, John Hunter, who would have been as pleased as punch to see this happen. But unfortunately, uh, he was no longer on the scene because a few years earlier, on the 16th of October, 1793, Hunter had died. And the circumstances of his death were quite dramatic. He was in an argument with some surgical colleagues at St. George's. He had an attack of angina, which turned into a heart attack and basically dropped dead on the spot. Uh, his surgical colleagues were not uh, terribly moved by his death. In fact, it was suggested that they deliberately provoked the argument to give him an attack of angina in the hope of killing him. Uh, after he died, they had a vote on whether they would send their condolences to Hunter's widow, Anne, and the majority was against that motion, so they didn't do that. Um, back then, if you were a great teacher, then you generously donated your body to the cause of medical science, and that's exactly what Hunter did. Uh, so he arranged for himself to be dissected in front of his students, uh, and he made two requests. One was that his Achilles tendon would be in the museum permanently, and the other that his heart, the coronary arteries, would be in it. And he had two very good reasons for that. The first thing is that he, has, he had ruptured his Achilles tendon while practicing Scottish dancing at half past three one morning. And uh, he'd hobbled around for a while and then the tendon had repaired itself. So he wanted his Achilles tendon to be in a pot in the museum so that the students could see how tendons repaired themselves. Uh, he believed that eventually his angina would kill him and that's why he wanted his heart to be in the museum in a pot so that students could see what would happen there. Um, the person that did the dissection was, guess who? Everard Hume. And guess what he did with the heart and the Achilles tendon? He threw them out. And so he, he had a revenge beyond the grave, if you like, on his, uh, his brother-in-law. And again, the thing that motivated that, one of the things that motivated it appears to have been his jealousy of the very close relationship between Jenna and John Hunter. Uh, Jenna went from strength to strength. Uh, in the last few minutes, I'll just show you where this has all led. Um, this is a picture of the great and good in 1800. These were the senior people in the Medical Society of London. At the time, the physicians in London were probably the best on the planet, so these were the top docs on, on Earth at the time. And you'll see, if you look around the faces, you, they all look pretty uh, much the same, but there's one who looks a bit odd. He's been stuck in, he doesn't look quite as well-defined as the rest, and there he is, and that's Edward Jenner. And the reason for that is that uh, the tall chap on the right there, this is John Coakley Letsom, very famous Quaker physician, he realized that after they had produced this copper plate engraving of this wonderful ceremonial event at the Medical Society of London, he realized that they'd left Jenner out. And Jenner was clearly going to get very big, so they had to get him in. So they sent the copper plate back to the engraver and said, it's great, but we want Jenna. 
So the poor old engraver had to cut a circle out of the original copper plate, make a little plug with Jenna's face on it, stick it in, and then run off more copies. So that's why Jenna doesn't look quite as clear as the rest. Shortly after that, um, various people, including Jenna and uh, President Jefferson of the United States, were predicting that vaccination would not only protect individuals, but eventually, if you could apply it on a massive scale, would actually make the virus extinct. And at the end of Jenner's life, he could look back actually and see, for example, the province of Lombardy in northern Italy, completely smallpox free for the first time ever. So although it was extrapolating a bit too far to the complete extinction of smallpox, there was enough evidence there that actually vaccination applied massively across the planet could actually get rid of smallpox for all time. And that's exactly what happened. Um, 1967, the World Health Organization decided to eradicate smallpox. Uh, this is the map of the world back then. The countries colored black are the ones in which smallpox was endemic. In other words, it's there all the time. Back in Jenner's day, the whole of the earth, except for the very top and the very bottom, would have been black, because smallpox was everywhere. And the reason it's been got rid of over most of the surface of the planet is because of vaccination. Uh, 1967, the World Health Organization decided to apply global vaccination campaign to eradicate it. Uh, they said they would do it in 10 years. In the event, it took them just over 11. And uh, this little girl was the last victim of the more severe strain of smallpox known as variola major. She was found hiding under a sack of flour in the little village on the island of Bola in the mouth of the Ganges. And she'd been hidden there by her mum in the picture uh, on the instruction of the local government officials and the local doctors, because smallpox had disappeared completely from Asia, except for this tiny outbreak in this piddling little village on this island. So they decided they had to hide the evidence. So that's why they shoved the little girl under the sack of flour. Uh, she got better, and that was all fine. Uh, there was a little enclave of smallpox in the Horn of Africa, and that hung on a bit longer. Uh, the last victim of variola minor which was the kind of smallpox that was there. It still was a killer, but it was slightly less of a killer than the big bad one. Uh, it was a hospital porter who worked as a, uh, as a volunteer vaccinator in a smallpox isolation hospital. And you'd have thought that he would have been vaccinated, but he hadn't. So when he was in contact with a little girl dying of smallpox and developed smallpox a few days later, they all thought he had chickenpox because medical people couldn't possibly get smallpox in the line of duty. Uh, he recovered as well. They waited a bit to make sure they hadn't missed anything. And then a really, really big day in the history of public health preventative medicine. 8th of May, 1980, the World Health Organization declared that target zero, in other words, the complete eradication of smallpox, had been procured. You probably know that there is some controversy about who really discovered vaccination. Well, we've, I've told you all about Edward Jenner. Um, I haven't told you about one of his medical friends from Thornbury, very, very close, a man called John Fuster. And it seems very likely that Fuster thought of vaccination and probably discussed it at a venison dinner at which Jenner was sitting. So we don't know whether the cowgirl that uh, Jenner is supposed to have met in Sodding Chippery was for real or not. Uh, that story comes from John Barron's life of Jenner and as well as being Jenner's biographer, John Barron was one of Jenner's greatest ever admirers. So there might have been a bit of spin, a bit of propaganda in there. Uh, we do know that a farmer 
from Yetminster in Darzat, Benjamin Jesty. Uh, he actually thought of vaccination uh, about 22 years before Jenner finally got around to doing his experiment. And uh, we know that he vaccinated his wife and his two sons using one of his wife's uh, uh, rusty darning needles, uh, blister on the udder of one of his neighbor's cows. Uh, the two boys were fine. Uh, and in fact, he later had them variolated to prove that smallpox couldn't catch them. Uh, his wife nearly died. She nearly lost her arm with an infection. And as a result of that, they had to be chased out of Yetminster, where he used to live. And you can see his gravestone in a little village on the Isle of Purbeck, down near the south coast of Dorset. So Jenner was not the first, but he was the man that put vaccination on the map. And this is in the uh, Welcome Rare book collection. And you'll see that these are the perceived greatest names in medicine. Uh, Jenner is right there. And so is Hunter. And I think that's entirely appropriate. I'm going to end up with two shameless plugs. Uh, the first one is for Jenner's house in Berkeley. It's now the Edward Jenner Museum. Andrew Marr rates it as one of the five most important places in world history, and I'm inclined to agree. It is, however, an endangered species, and it's running out of money very fast. It needs £20,000 to survive the coming year. So if any of you have access to a fairy godmother who'd like to be remembered as the person who saved Jenner's house for posterity, that, this would be a good time to do it. If that building were in London, it would be a national monument. If it were in France, Germany, or America, it would be a World Heritage Site, and it's none of those things. Final plug, 30 seconds. This is the result of my uh, sabbatical year. I had great fun. This is the most enjoyable research project I did during my entire research career in medicine, so great fun. Uh, why should you buy it? Well, all the royalties go to Dr. Jenner's house, who do need the dosh, as I've mentioned. There are only 224 shopping days to Christmas. <laughs> I happen to have some copies here, anybody's interested. And it's not actually that bad. I mean, it got, it got shortlisted for the medical equivalent of the Booker Prize. It didn't win, but it did get very, very close. And it is also a book that actually might change your life, possibly forever. And here's the evidence for that. Here's a friend of ours reading the book on page one. Here he is just two pages later. <laughs> so thank you very much for your attention. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if anyone has any questions, I can now throw it open to the floor. Please. Uh, well, yes, the, yes there, there were numerous political cartoons produced both for and against vaccination. Um, there were plenty of people who didn't believe, thank you very much, didn't believe that vaccination was very good. So you have lots of things with Jenna being portrayed as a demon. And again, the picture I showed you at the very beginning with that rather evil-looking man, that was part of the anti-vaccination propaganda, which uh, still goes on to this day, as you know. Um, I think the best response to that was a lovely cartoon by James Gilray, a very famous political cartoonist of the era. Uh, and this was called something like uh, The Non-Dangers of Vaccination. I can't remember the exact title. But this basically shows a room full of people being vaccinated. The rumor was that if you were vaccinated, you would turn into a cow. 
And believe it or not, there were actually medical case reports in medical journals depicting, for example, a young lad in Peckham who was sprouting horns and running around on all fours, bellowing like a cow. I mean, my kids did that all the time, so didn't see what was unusual. But anyway, they thought this was a side effect of vaccination. And uh, this wonderful cartoon by James Gilray shows people in this room sprouting bits of cows from all imaginable bits of their anatomy. But of course, he's not making fun of vaccination. He's making fun of people who are stupid enough to believe that your child would turn into a cow if you had them vaccinated. Thank you for that. I think I've killed them. Oh, no, hang on. There's somebody still alive over there. Thank you. That's a very good question. Where did smallpox come from? Um, it's a member of the orthopox viridae family. It's an orthopox virus. It's related very closely to um, cowpox, also to horsepox, camelpox, and gerbilpox. And when I wrote the book, the thinking was that the smallpox virus had mutated from gerbilpox. And if you put the two DNA genomes side by side, you can see how a couple of mutations could actually turn gerbilpox into smallpox. Since the book came out, they've done another analysis which suggests that actually it came from camelpox. So the interesting question is whether smallpox or something like it could ever come back. And there is a virus called monkeypox, which affects monkeys and occasionally gets into man. If it gets into man, it's pretty serious, but the thing it doesn't yet do is jump from one person to another. It jumps from monkey to monkey, but if it gets into man, then it doesn't jump from man to man. Uh, however, people are waiting to see, obviously, whether something like smallpox could come back in the future. Yeah, the question is the, the current stocks of smallpox. The, the backstory is that um, America and Russia were entrusted with samples of smallpox strains by the World Health Organization. And uh, there's one batch kept under lock and key in a minus 70 freezer in the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, Georgia. And there is another lot which is held in a little town in Novosibirsk called Koltsevo. And the place in Russia that it's held is actually the same building where the Russians were developing weapons-grade smallpox as a bioterrorist weapon during the Cold War. So there's a certain tension about that, as you might imagine. I think, to answer your question, the chances of either of those stocks escaping are very small because the facilities are patrolled, basically, by the WHO. They're under lock and key. Um, what's not known is whether um, there is smallpox elsewhere. And all the people working in Russia on the smallpox weapons program uh, their favorite weapons-grade smallpox, by the way, was a strain called India, which they tweaked in the lab so that it would be radiation-resistant. And that meant that after you had nuked a city in America or Europe, you could then send in little bomblets with another intercontinental ballistic missile, and the smallpox being radiation-resistant could then take out anybody who'd survived. And it seems that that was actually happening. Um, at the end of the Cold War, uh, all those... Uh, germ warfare facilities were closed down and the people were made redundant. So you can imagine that there might have been a scientist with a bit of a grievance and a big hole in the income stream who would have flogged a bit of smallpox to somebody. The fact that it hasn't happened yet probably means that that didn't actually take place, but it's still something people are worried about. Thank you. Oh, right, thank you. Will you get another one for free then? Come on. <laughs>
Um, yeah. I mean, the chances of the baby not catching smallpox are probably very, very small, I would think. Um, yeah, I mean, if, if she'd met smallpox before, then she could have had protective antibodies in the breast milk, but clearly that was not the case. So I wouldn't have thought very long, no. It's, thank you. Yes, well, the, the, whole, the, the, the whole question of uh, immunity against smallpox was something that I don't think they sorted out during the lifetime of the virus. Um, I mean, you can imagine that if, if people get... Smallpox is a disease where everybody knew that you had it. It's not like polio, where you could actually have a subclinical infection. Every time somebody got smallpox, people around them, and they knew that they'd actually had it. Um, so I think it's just a question of the luck of the draw. Um, I mean, in Europe, there were relatively smallpox-free years. Um, if you look back at the bills of mortality in London, then you'll see that there were uh, years in which the mortality from smallpox during the 18th century was, was pretty well zero. And there were other years where it came back and really swept across the nation as a whole. So I think it would just have been the luck of the draw. And obviously, young kids would not have met the virus before, and they're probably more susceptible to, to being killed by the virus. Can I have a cheerful question, please? Thank you. Well, mon monkeypox can infect humans at the moment. But the, the thing that it doesn't do is if, if you catch monkeypox off a monkey, the thing that doesn't happen is you can then spread monkeypox to another person. Because it, it's, uh, again, it's a relatively rare infection, luckily. Uh, and the host is obviously monkeys. But it can occasionally infect humans. Um, that's exactly it, yeah. But again, that's something that could, in theory, change if there's an unlucky mutation with the monkeypox virus. Yeah. I mean, if, if that did happen, then presumably you'd have an outbreak of something very like smallpox, but it would just be in one area. So we still have stockpiles of smallpox vaccine. They could go in and just ring vaccinate around the outbreak and stamp it out in that way, in the way that they got rid of smallpox during the last stages of the eradication campaign. Yes, the, the, yes, it was in Turkey. Yep. The, the question is the, the role of Lady Mary Wortley Montagu, who sadly I didn't really have time to talk about today, but uh, she's right up on the list of people I would have loved to have met and spent an evening with. Uh, an amazing woman, a sort of socialite, born with a silver spoon, educated herself, wrote poetry, great friends with Alexander Pope, and then great enemies with Alexander Pope. Uh, and she eloped with a man who then became... 
His Majesty's ambassador to the Ottoman Empire to Turkey. And while she was posted to Constantinople, she discovered the phenomenon, local phenomenon of smallpox parties, which is where they brought in an elderly Greek or Turkish nurse with half walnut shell full of smallpox blister juice, and they then scratched this into the arms of the children of the diplomats and the diplomatic compound. And that was the first time that variolation was reported back to England. Uh, she wrote a letter on April Fool's Day, 1717, to her best friend, who actually later died of smallpox, explaining this wonderful tradition. And when she came back, uh, she brought her son, whom she'd had variolated as a, as a guinea pig, and then she had her daughter done in front of the great physicians of London, and she persuaded um, the then Princess of Wales to have the princesses variolated as well. So that's where the whole thing took off. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that was the bell, so we are now out of time. I'd like to thank uh, Gareth again for a superb talk on this subject. If uh, you'd like to join me. And I definitely feel that what we have learned today is to keep away from both gerbils and monkeys. They are very dangerous indeed. Um, my colleagues in the archives have very kindly sat up a display of um, facsimile materials related to Jenna at the back of the library. So please do go and look at that. This is material that is not on display up in our exhibition, which is on the upper floor of the museum and focuses on uh, vaccination. Um, again, I'd like to thank the uh, AHRC for the funding that has made this event series possible and uh, advise you that our next lecture is on the 7th of June um, entitled Reframing Disability and it looks at um, a body of work and an exhibition previously at the Royal College of Physicians. And finally, as ever, our evaluation forms are on your chairs. We'd be very grateful if you could complete them and hand them back to me on your way out. Thank you.